Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I'm back. Let's do this. <laughs> Nick, Nick is healthy. Woo. Yay. Welcome back. Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, and joined, as always, by uh, my two favorite political scientists, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College, who is doing a touchdown dance, now that I said that, uh, and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Which one of us is the number one political scientist? Which one's the number two? You say we're our two favorites. You know I don't play favorites, Phil. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to tell your children. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh. Another busy week. Very busy week. Going. Yes. Um, fire and fury. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Are, would you say we're all very stable geniuses? I mean, we're very. definitely geniuses. Yeah. I that or, or, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think we're pretty stable. People, geniuses usually go around telling other people that they are geniuses, that's, right? That's How would anybody else know if they're geniuses or not? You got people sure, to tell people. I'm sure, Einstein did that all the time. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> have so I. I, I was able to, I downloaded a copy of the book. I was only able to get through about a quarter of it. I, I, it's interesting in the sense of, I, I mean, it's salacious. It's, it's just salacious. <clears throat> it reads like a, like a soap opera script. Yeah. And, but it's nothing, so far nothing that I have seen is anything that we haven't talked about at length. Sure. They didn't think they were going to win the election. They were not prepared to win the election. They were going to use it as a um, publicity booster. Um, Ivanka and Jared were going to come out being brand ambassadors for the Trump brand. And uh, Donald just uh, has no no fucking idea what's <laughs> going on. Of response. They screwed up and got elected. <laughs> they screwed up and got elected. I was saying, when, we, when, we, when he first got elected, it was the, the producer's analogy, and it's in the book. It's in the first few chapters of the book. Yeah. So they thought it was going to be a big thing as long as they flopped, and it just didn't turn out to be the case. And thinking of it through that frame makes a lot of sense, right? You don't, you're, you don't need to win. You don't want to win. In fact, that's a burden. If you're Donald Trump, you become the most popular or most well-known person in the world. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, during the uh, actual election night, when the, the final results were coming in, they said he was just white as a ghost. <laughs> just was terrified of what was happening. And then almost immediately, he turned into this person who thought that he should be president and deserved to be president. Like, he, he knew he could do it because he won. Like, that that was it. It didn't have anything, anything up to that point. Any sort of fear he had was washed away because he won which vindicates his ability to run the country. I think that works for most jobs, right? Airline pilot <laughs> of or... Fake it till you make it. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Well, that that explains. I mean, if that's true, that explains why he that is his the thing he comes back to over and over again. Yeah. The size of his victory that he won, that he beat so many Republicans in the primary. Like no, like here we are a year and you know a year and a quarter after the election. And he's still this week in, in speeches talking about how or, or Stephen Miller is talking about <laughs> right. how how many people he he beat to win this this race. If if that's the only thing that like makes you feel like you're qualified to do this job, then yeah, right. Keep going back to it. I guess he was still going after even today going after Hillary Clinton. It's the same kind of themes over and over and over again. Should we walk through a couple? I've got a couple quotes from the book. Uh, maybe yes, maybe please. do that, and then we can talk about his I'm trying to find my own his very stable genius comments, his tweets in response. So the one I didn't I didn't have a chance to read the book, but I've been reading articles about it, and they've been quoting it extensively. But there was one where they talk about, or the author talks about, the central issue of the Trump presidency. He doesn't process information in any conventional sense or in any way. He didn't process it at all. Trump didn't read. He really didn't even skim. If it was print, he might, it might as well not exist. Some believe for that all practical purposes, he was no more than semi-literate. That's, that's stunning, right? I mean, this idea of a... I mean, obviously he can read but because he reads from the teleprompter, but that he's not reading anything in the office. Uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, you're right, that Nick, that it's nothing new, but it seems that, I guess we can talk about the credibility of the book, but given that all those around him are echoing this theme, it's just everybody in the, informa- in the inside of the administration is making the same argument. It, mm-hmm. it really is. It, it confirms what everybody had been suggesting. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the quotes that he had... Um, that the the book had that uh, that Trump said, and it's just full. You forget some of the things that he said that yeah. aren't really popularized. Um, there was a, a longer one where he visited um, uh, CA headquarters in Langley. That that first yes, time, early on, which um, I, I won't go through the whole thing now, but he it just it's nonsensical. It makes zero <laughs> sense. So this is another one. Um, uh, where was it? He, oh, I think... No, this was part of it, actually. Uh, he goes, and I quote, uh, You know, when I was young, of course I feel young. I feel like I was 30, 35, 39. Somebody said, Are you young? I said, I think I'm young. I was stopping... <laughs> I was stopping in the final months of the campaign. Four stops, five stops, seven stops. Speeches, speeches in front of 25, 30 thousand people 15 19,000 I feel young I think we're all so young when I was young we were always winning things and these that's are, a quote that's he's literally said that he literally said yeah. that to the intelligence community oh as uh the and there was, he had one sentence at the at the very end of it saying how we supported the intelligence community and they all do a great job everything else prior to that was not some feeling young well it, <laughs> Go ahead, Phil. Did, <laughs> did you see the quote that he, it was a couple of days ago in which he was giving this sort of campaign rally type uh, speech in which he taught he says he says to the audience, uh, "You're so lucky that you got to <laughs> yes. vote for me." Oh yes. yeah, it was to the farmers. Yes, he was telling was. the farmers that. Oh, are you happy you voted for me? You are so lucky that I gave you that privilege. Mm. Oh, what an ass. <laughs> yes. Right, hold on. You got another one? The, yeah, this was the second part of that. Um, let's see. Uh, when I was young, we were always winning things in this country. We'd win with trade. We'd win with wars. At a certain age, I remember hearing from one of my instructors, the United States has never lost a war. And then after that, 
It's like we haven't won anything. You know the old expression, to the victor belong the spoils? You remember I always say, keep the oil. (laughs) (laughs) And then, who should keep the oil? Asked the bewildered CIA employee, leaning over to a colleague in the back of the room. Oh, it's just that, that CIA speech was something else. Oh, God, oh. I had forgotten about that. There was, a, <laughs> there was another one uh, that I had seen in an article. So Wolf quotes an internal White House email, apparently representing Gary Cohen's view, quote, It is worse than you can imagine. An idiot surrounded by clowns. Trump won't, won't read anything. Not one-page memos. Not the brief, pol- brief policy papers. Nothing. He gets up halfway through meetings and, uh, with world leaders because he's bored. <laughs> it's just, you're right it's nothing new but certainly doesn't there was always part of me that felt this was exaggerated that maybe mm. it wasn't as bad as we thought and that he was playing a role does this book confirm that we can say he really truly is you know the sense of uh being incompetent incoherent and semi-literate i mean uh, do we feel like this is no longer an act but it truly is who he is i, I mean i think you can say that a, a significant portion of the book has been exaggerated to yeah. some extent because obviously this author was not in the room with Bannon or Trump or Kushner or half of these people as these conversations were going on. It's it's secondhand, but um, there's just so much. And and you talk about if you know if three quarters of this is true, if one tenth of this right. is true, <laughs> it's really really disconcerting. Yeah. So. And I think we, we approach, there, we have a tendency, or I have a tendency, I think sort of like you, Bill, to think that it can't possibly be <laughs> right. that bad, right? And so you, you, you sort of assume that, well, it can't, it can't be as bad as people are portraying it. But when you step back, like, all the stuff that he, whether the, the details, the fine details of this book are accurate or not, it doesn't, it, it's not out of line with what you see from Trump right. in his public persona, right? I mean, he's not, he's, he's. He's not a person who uses big words. He can't, you know, it's pretty clear he doesn't read, right? Not that not that he can't read, but that he chooses yeah. not to read. Um, I mean, these have been stories that have been circulated from the beginning of his presidency. And, you know, the speeches he gives, the quotes he gives in public make you think that the quotes that he's pulling out, you know, right. from people around him aren't, they, they, whether they're specifically true or not, they perfectly line up with everything we know about his presidency. Well, his Twitter response, that's the thing. As I was reading some of the, the segments of the book online, they were talking about it. He comes out and he starts tweeting, and he comes and he has this very stable genius tweets. But there were a couple things. One was he tweeted out, quote, Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. Like really smart. <laughs> yes, that's in the tweet. Mm-hmm. And then he continues on the third tweet. I think it would qualify not as smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. So it's hard to come back and say this book is inaccurate when you say things like that, when you claim that you're a very stable genius and, like, really smart. Uh, What what burden (laughs) do those people around him have? So... You know, if it is true that everyone—not everyone, but the, the the inner circle of Trump's uh, highest levels are are talking about the Twenty Fifth Amendment and our cons- amendments and are concerned about these things, what responsibility do they have to come forward and and share this information? I mean, if it's as bad as this seems to suggest, don't they bear some responsibility to say to, to somebody to come out and say I'm I'm resigning and I'm telling you this is worse than you could ever possibly imagine i i mean i think you're seeing a lot of resignation just not part of the 
the administration itself. How many Republicans in Congress have now resigned? And I'm, you can't, n no part of me thinks that they're doing that just because they think it's time. Sure. I, right. I, it does, it's political suicide for the party. I, I think they know the writing's on the wall, and it's because of exactly what we're because talking about. Yeah. It, it, we talked about this early on in his presidency, whether, and, and we talked about it sort of in a, I guess in a general sense, but we talked about it in terms of, you know, foreign policy and, but yeah, do, do people around him have this obligation to come forward to, to be essentially a whistleblower? And I go back and forth because I want to say yes, but then I, I come back around to this idea that nowhere in the constitution does it say that you have to be smart or literate to be president, mm -hmm. right? So, um, I could see someone who has issues or concerns about him, uh, bringing those up, but if if it's not in some way sort of directly threatening you know if it's just this guy's an idiot um you know maybe you try to stay and keep things between the lines but if it's whether he's sort of an endangering idiot that, right, that right. It is the question and that's not an easy line to find right, right. Mm -hmm. um uh so yeah i don't i don't know i mean we talked to there's there's some question again that i i come back to a lot about the people around him and whether we will look back on them as heroes or villains. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the, uh, we've talked a lot about it in foreign policy and some of them, it's pretty easy. Like you look at Stephen Miller and he, that, that guy's oh, a villain, right? God, like he's, he's there's nothing heroic about him. He's totally self-interested, <laughs> but there are these others, you know, Madison, who, who else around him that, that you kind of wonder, well, you know, are they, are they doing the noble hard thing? Mm -hmm. It would be if if you're coming from sort of a disciplined military background, it would be really hard yeah. to do this day in and day out, I mm -hmm. imagine. Yeah, I would think that there's there's probably a divide between the foreign policy people and the domestic policy people where you can talk about somebody like Matt as saying he really is in that job probably to keep the country safe and from blowing up. Maybe even Kelly, maybe McMaster, those guys. The domestic level guys, whether we're talking about Bannon or Kushner, uh, Stephen Miller, some of them, I think they think they can use Trump's indifference mm -hmm. or ignorance about the issues to push their agenda. Yes. And that that would make a lot of sense. And that would be appealing if you're somebody like Bannon or Kushner, whatever it is, like yeah. that you can mold and shape him. And he doesn't have to be bright. Right. He just has to follow orders. Yeah. What became really apparent, and again, I did not read the entire book, was how central Bannon's thought process and strategy was to the conception of this mm -hmm. camp campaign. He was like, that's, that was the only thing that was important. Nobody thought they were going to win. Um, and it's just it, the, the quote was, um, so Bannon's zeitgeist, zeitgeist moment had arrived everywhere. There was a sudden sense of global self-doubt Brexit in the UK waves of immigrants arriving on Europe's angry shores the disenfranchisement of the working man, the specter of a more financial meltdown, Bernie Sanders and his liberal revanchism, everywhere was backlash. Even the most dedicated exponents of globalism were hesitating. Bannon believed the great number of people were suddenly receptive to a new message. The uh, world needed borders, or the world should return to a time when it had borders, when America was great. Trump had become the platform for that message. Yeah. He's a vehicle. Sure. So, uh, yeah, the fact that it... it, it, it it's a, a single-minded focus on one very particular message. And now, with Bannon out of the picture, I don't know if they have any sort of message anymore. And I don't know what's more frightening 
in that situation. An empty vessel right. who needs ideas. Because early on you had all that drama when you had Bannon pushing his perspective. You had Kushner pushing his more liberal, internationalist perspective. Maybe Reince Priebus was pushing the conventional republic. So there was all this infighting. And now it feels like that's gone away to some sense. Especially, we'll talk about Bannon in a little bit, but that ideology is gone. Yeah. Um, did you guys see Stephen Miller's interview <laughs> on CNN with Jake Tapper? Speaking of stable genius. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I think about it. So he was sent out there to defend Trump, and he did it with vigor. <laughs> and in a way that just, there's no way you can walk away from that liking Stephen Miller because he's so that, obnoxious. That wasn't a defense of Trump. That was uh, that was him sitting on sitting on TV talking to Trump, kissing right. Trump's right. ass, right? That, it was like this over-the-top just like insane amount of kind of praise and how wonderful Trump is and that, that's not a defense that's like I don't even know what that is and Tapper even called him out he said you're, you're speaking to an audience of one and yeah. I, I think that's spot on that's what he was doing but it will endear him now that Bannon's gone Miller maybe is that go-to guy and what a just obnoxious jerk whatever the you know whatever his ideology <laughs> is I mean even if he was liberal if he was conservative he is so smug and awful he's He's he is the the sort of really crappy knockoff version of Steve Bannon, right? He's right. got the nationalist attitude, but everything you read about him is that he he's not he's even though he's a speechwriter, he's not a particularly good speechwriter. He's not all that effective. Whereas Bannon, you know, had these more fringe ideas, but yeah. clearly had the ability to kind of put them together in a way that I don't I don't see that Miller has any of that. No. Miller just has the crazy ideas without any of the you know, the, 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 no, heft, uh, the intellectual heft. Yeah, yes. yeah. But it wasn't just Bannon. I'm sorry. It wasn't just Stephen Miller. You also had Mike Pence was out this the last few days defending him, talking about how, he didn't use the word brilliant, but I mean, Mike Pence will just go on and on about how wonderful Trump was. Lindsey Graham was doing the same thing. I mean, they were, it was a full court press to make the case that, no, this guy is, he is a stable genius. Mm-hmm. What happened to Lindsey Graham? Oh. Like, he went from being one of the biggest critics to this total ass kisser. A lot what, of, what? I don't know. He gave up Bob Corker as well. A lot of them are, you know, they were having the sense of integrity as, as separating themselves. And now... I don't know. Lindsey Graham is the worst in terms of giving up. It just seems like a kamikaze mission at this point. Like, they just, they know, it it feels like they know they're just not going to come back from this anytime soon, and the midterms are lost at this point. So why not hang on to what little ideological control that we still have? Or maybe they're just tired. I'd be tired. I'd be very tired. It's exhausting. This is kind of off topic, but it's kind of spurring off from these things we're talking about. Um, if Bannon was kind of the brains behind this, and that's we sort of suspected that, but if it comes out, you know, in this book and, and in other places, that uh, he really sort of orchestrated this Trumpian movement that occurred, um, and he's gone now, and so you have this president without necessarily a clear agenda. That sets up for an interesting reelection campaign for Trump because the, you could you obviously he didn't win by much. If Steve Bannon was what pushed him over the top, without Steve Bannon, he would have lost. Right? Uh, do you do you think do you foresee any sort of successful Republican challenge? It's rare to have a challenge, a primary challenge to a sitting president, but I, I could see that happening. Um, I I don't know who that would be, but I the right person could be really potentially successful. Mm-hmm. 
of all sitting presidents, he's probably the most vulnerable when you think about this. Uh, and especially what you know, we're we're still years away from that potential. So it's it's not going to get better. I mean, you'd have to start fielding and vetting people now, probably in the next six months. It 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 seems like a, a massive opportunity for someone like Mitt Romney. Right. Right. Yep. So so someone who was you know, lambasted as this extreme person by the, you know, Democrats were like, oh, you know, Mitt Romney's the worst, right? Now suddenly looks incredibly moderate and sane and logical. Right. And and it, it just seems like someone like that who has this very sort of middle of the road look to them right now, someone who's appealing in that they have background, they have knowledge, they're sane. Um, I Yeah, if I'm someone like Mitt Romney, I'm looking at a chance to re- you know, rerun to retell my story and really have a chance at this. Well, this is the other thing, though. Like, we're we're looking at this from a very one-sided perspective. We still don't realistically know what the differential in the vote is going to be. I, I mean, it, it seems to us, and probably to a lot of people, that there's going to be a major swing towards the left, whether you like it or not. I personally don't like it, but that's apparently <laughs> fine. Um, I... I I don't know I don't I don't know how effective it would be because it could significantly split the vote. I think there are enough people that are still invested in the opposition politics model that we're, we've become so accustomed to that they won't necessarily want someone more moderate. I think there's there's value to a lot of people seeing, the Democrats and liberals in general and, you know, even more moderate Republicans just losing their minds over this shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think it's a powerful narrative that we don't necessarily know what the results are going to be yet. And think about where Trump is at. He his, He's had a wonderful economy. I mean, the economy is just exploding in terms of numbers oh, and the stock market and all of that. Job numbers are in a good position. He couldn't have walked into a better economic situation. And we could have a conversation whether he played a role in that, how much of a role. At minimum, he, didn't, he hasn't gotten in the way with the economy. So this should be an economy where his, his approval numbers should be high, very, very high. And he's hovering around the you know, mid-30s. There are going to be things that are going to come to him, international events, domestic events, that only are going to make the presidency more difficult. And a couple of years down the road, make him less interesting less viable so i absolutely think there's there's the potential for somebody but if if that was the case you would think you would see more people pushing back at this stage other than mitt romney more you know lindsey graham not caving but it just feels to me like all these republicans are caving to trump in a way that's a bit surprising yeah so did you see today that trump was going after the libel laws what the libel laws? He's, he's done this a lot, but yeah, yeah this, the book has brought it back up again. So today he was quoted as saying, "Quote: We're going to go to we're going to take a strong look at our country's libel laws, so that when somebody says something that is false and defamatory, defamatory about someone, that person will have meaningful recourse in the courts. Our current libel laws are a sham and a disgrace, and do not represent American values or American fairness." So the fact that he's talking about false. False comments? <laughs> you know, it's a little silly, but uh, I, I don't know. It's are alternative I don't, comments. Yeah. yeah. This is me sort of talking out of my ass because I don't know um, that much about liable laws. So I could be wrong on this. But it's my impression that is that America's sort of very 
kind of liberal interpretation of libel laws come from the courts, not from, I mean, it's through interpretations based on the, on, on the, you know, the bill of rights. It's not based on right. a law that Congress has right. passed. Right. It's not really something that could be changed anyway, but <laughs> it seems like the constitution would win that battle. <laughs> so. It's just, it's so transparent. Like why, why yeah. would all of these things that you just don't have to do and they continue to go after these things, and it just drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. I, I, we probably have to move on pretty quickly, but I want to ask you guys one more question. So David Brooks from the New York Times wrote a piece this week in which he argued that the book Fire and Fury represents lowbrowism of the worst kind. And he, you know, he goes on this long thing where he talks about how Donald Trump has lowered the discourse and that Fox News has done this. Uh, and that, you know, he's he's a, a conservative but an anti-Trumper. Uh, he says that we also have our lowbrowism and that we need to be careful because books like this represent the worst type of lowbrowism. That what we're doing is we, we're falling prey to the same thing that Trump is peddling. He says, quote, in every war, nations come to resemble their enemies. So I suppose it's normal that the anti-Trump movement would come to resemble the pro-Trump movement. But it's not good. And um, this is just this isn't just a struggle over a president. It's a struggle over what rules we're going to play by after Trump. Are we going to descend permanently into the Trump standard of acceptable behavior? Or are we going to restore the distinction between excellence and mediocrity, truth and lie? I thought that was very powerful. And it made me mm -hmm. think a little bit more about this book because it was so easy to be pulled in to all of the oh, yeah. the details and, and just to, to pile on. But the reality is that this author is is garbage, right? I mean, he's the perfect epitome of somebody who would come in and write a book about Trump. Sure. Uh, so I don't I don't know. Should we worry about that? The anti-Trump movement is it is it being pulled in and brought down to the same level of Trump? I, I, do you think that that hadn't happened already? Did I miss something? <laughs> <laughs> Nick, we still believe in truth in this podcast. <laughs> it's a I, it's a hard. It's a fine line to walk, right? Because I, the, mm -hmm. the point that he's making is totally valid, which is to, to sort of stoop to kind of personal attacks and get excited about the latest yeah. gossip that came out. and all. It's very much Trumpian. But also, if Donald Trump is nearly illiterate and <laughs> is un, unstable or whatever, right? Those are things that... Semi-literate. <laughs> I shouldn't. Those are really bad examples because those are very... That's a very Trumpian critique of Trump, right? right? But... If there are real concerns about his ability to make, you know, appropriate decisions, if you're, there are concerns about, you know, he's self-interested as opposed to sort of making decisions that are best for the country, those are valid critiques that need to be discussed. And so walking this line of critiquing Trump, um, I, it, it's natural and it's normal and it's right to do that, but to not descend into sort of the gossip personal attack that... The difference, to some extent, the difference is that it, well, it comes down to how, yeah, the the Trumpian way is just to attack people, right, right regardless right, right. of actually any truth to it at all, and so that's where it becomes incredibly important to make sure that you can actually verify and back up these things, which is maybe where the book is difficult. I mean, it does cite people, but it is kind of a you know a word of mouth sort of approach to, to it death. very rarely cites people which yeah. I, I, it became very apparent this is not bob woodward going in for the bush administration and, and talking to people and, and having a very detailed account this is somebody who's okay with you know rumors and somebody said this about somebody else and it makes for probably wonderful reading 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a page turner. <laughs> yes. But it does make me wonder whether I think Brooks is on to something about whether, you know, it's I think it's appropriate to push back against Trump's successes. And we have to do that uh, and question whether he's he's fit to be president, but to not do so in a way that is just feeding off some of this ugliness. Mm. Yeah. Um, Where's the fun in that, though? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean it's it's an interesting thing to think about, and I'm of the opinion that both sides are equally culpable at this point. And even the book makes a point. You know, the the salacious, um, uh, non-reference laden book that 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 I've read um, makes a point of yeah, it, part of this whole thing was the media also just kind of devolved into this mm-hmm. just uh, venom spitting just vessel for anger of, of something that they don't agree with and was completely anathema of anything that they believe in this puritanical backlash that they have which should not be what the left is doing by definition it's it's interesting to see the the devolution of mm-hmm. both sides at this point and i'm <laughs> i'm i'm wondering i'm hoping there's a breaking point mm-hmm. at some point or we finally hit rock bottom and start coming back up but it's, it's hard to get back up after that concussion you suffer after Trump is, that rock is, bottom. he's a heavy weight he he pulls everyone down mm-hmm. so, yeah this was still fun though it was fun <laughs> should we talk beers yeah we got a half an hour just on fire and fury yeah <laughs> no what, what are you drinking <laughs> Uh, I, so I I just had one tonight, and I, I had the Lagunitas 12th of Never, um, which I've, we've talked about a number of times on here. I, it's it's good. I'll leave it at that since we've talked about it before. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, what are we drinking? Uh, something. We had uh, uh, Ambergeddon from, uh, from Ale Asylum, uh, labeled as, uh, with a fury of hop flavor and strong malt back... A strong malt back... Oh, backbone. Uh, this West Coast-style amber is part ale, part sensory eruption, and all-American. Ambergeddon is brewed with passion and is best enjoyed that way. Mm. Um, part sensory eruption? That yes. sounds... I don't know. I, I think it's in the sense of it's... Uh, there's a real... <laughs> there's a sharpness to it yeah. when you drink it, um, which I'm not a huge fan of. I, it's It's not like a kind of a smooth hoppy mm-hmm. sharpness it's um it's just kind of a sour mm. aftertaste i guess kind of thing i didn't get the sourness <laughs> sorry that's I, me I, I do ambers have been growing on me i, I enjoyed this one you're right it's i know different. i like ambers yeah. it's not it's it's a little bit of hoppy kind of maltiness i like that mm-hmm. uh lower carbonation yeah, this one, this one I enjoyed uh, by Ale Asylum in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, which makes a lot of good beer. So, but I could see why this would be more of a controversial beer. Fine, one would like it or not like fine. it. That's fine, fine, <laughs> whatever. <clears throat> That's all we've had thus far. Yeah, so. so we have so many other things to talk about. So, should we move to speed round? <clears throat> yes. So we're gonna we're gonna hit some Steve Bannon in speed round. Oh boy. So, all right, to get, to get our uh, listeners up to speed, Steve Bannon left his position as executive chairman of Breitbart News. Quote, uh, unquote. Yeah, on Tuesday. <laughs> now, when you think about this, in the course of the year, Bannon has gone from one of the most powerful men in the administration, I mean, if you remember President Bannon talk, to no longer having any platform to share his ideas. Uh, Breitbart readers seem to have clearly sided with President Trump in this civil war. 
Uh, and even, you know, uh, Phil was mentioning this earlier, Trump seems to have drifted in a way where he's moving or appears to potentially be moving away from all this nationalism talk. Uh, he's going to go to the World Economic Forum in Davos, something that Bannon absolutely detested. And yesterday he signaled that he was open to working with Democrats. So, you know, do we think the exit of Bannon is going to signal the end of Trump's hardcore nationalism? I mean, what, what is the significance of Bannon's departure and his you know, no longer having the platform at, at uh, Breitbart. I don't. I don't think it changes anything. I think the message is out there at this point, and the movement has moved on without him. And like we we've been talking about, Trump is kind of an empty vessel when it comes to this stuff. So, I've, what do you have left but to play to the opinion that these people have kind of attached themselves to? So the movement doesn't need I, Bannon anymore. And the movement doesn't need Bannon, and the movement realistically doesn't need Trump. But I, I go ahead. Yeah, I I think the that movement might need Bannon, mm-hmm. just for the the things we were talking about earlier about his kind of strategic mind. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference in the meantime that he's gone. So we, we've talked about Trump as being this sort of reflex machine. Yeah. And, and I think there's some level of kind of pre-programming in that, right? So, so it has been established that there are certain communities, the, the sort of alt-right is a big supporter of Trump. And I think the result of that is that that relationship or that dynamic has been established in a way that Trump, when he feels threatened or whatever, ha- he goes back to the people who just adore him, right? And so I think that 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 kind of the fact that Bannon sort of set him on that course, you remove Bannon, I think Trump stays on that course. Mm-hmm. I think to some extent, those sorts of ideas are, are going to stick. I think they may not go beyond the rhetoric as right. much because I think Steve Bannon was was the kind of, again, the strategic mind behind some of that. But I, I don't know that the that the rhetoric is going to change all that much from Trump. No, maybe it will. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think the fact that he's going to Davos is a big deal, right? I mean, this is this is something that the nationalist absolutely can't stand. This is global elitism. This is this is it's internationalism. So that's somewhat surprising. So I think you're probably right. At Trump's core, he probably is a Bannonite in that way, but he can easily be pulled in different directions. Uh, I mean, he could also be going to Davos to you know tell him to go screw. We don't. We have no idea what mm-hmm. his. What his motivations are for doing that's it in true. the first place. That's right. Yeah. You're, so, but you're you're right. I, I you've you've made me rethink my analysis. Now. <laughs> <laughs> he is also because he doesn't have uh, the sort of core belief system. I think he's very susceptible to the people around him. Right, and which yeah. is why there were times through this presidency where he meets with the Democrats and suddenly he's like, yeah, let's have a deal, right? (laughs) Right. Because the last person he talked to has the most sway over him in some ways. And Mm so in that sense, the the departure of Bannon might, or if Kushner and others have therefore easier access to the president, you might see some of that shift. That that makes sense. It's stunning that Bannon fell as quickly as he did. I mean, he was the brains of the administration. People forget that he was the right-hand man, basically the equivalent of Reince Priebus as chief of staff. Trump put him on the National Security Council. This was somebody who was absolutely his most influential player. And now, not only is he outside of the administration, Breitbart cut cut him loose. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel bad for Steve Bannon, this guy? I mean, it's, it's a classic... Shakespearean fall from power. I mean, this was... No, <laughs> no, no. 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 What, what also becomes really apparent from the book is that he never had success with anything. Mm-hmm. He just leached on to people, you know, in, in entertainment. And uh, this was his first 
uh, foray into politics ever, really. And he managed to succeed at it, but he, he he's just a scumbag. He's really good at piling lots of shirts on. You know, he can yes, like layer good three or four that. shirts, and yeah, yeah, he can pull that off. I'll give him that. Does he go away? I mean. I can't imagine a political system now where he's not relevant, but but losing his position at Breitbart is, is very, very significant. Because Fox, do you think Fox will pick him up? No way. No. no. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, and 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 uh, some of the some of the donors that were that were funneling money through him for these kind of down ballot races that he had been focusing on have also backed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I could see him falling into into obscurity, not obscurity. I mean, but but yeah. Um, what is what does Bannon in obscurity? Does he look worse? Is it possible to look worse than he is right now? I mean, can you go? I mean, now you're just gossiping. I, that's true. I'm, <laughs> I'm falling prey to low lowbrowism. <laughs> or, or there's part of me that feels like Trump and Bannon will make up. There's enough time. Six months from now, he'll give him a call and bring him back. And by I, time, I don't know. I think that in order for them to make up, it requires Bannon. To basically swallow any pride and kiss Trump's ass, and whereas other people like Chris Christie did that, I can't see Steve Bannon being <laughs> no. that sort of guy. I just can't see him doing that. No, he isn't. Uh, yeah, big change. I don't. So Steve. do you? I, I think that did the bell ring? Yeah. yeah. But you can ask I, I, a question. Do you do you feel sorry? You were asking if we feel sorry for him. Do you feel sorry for him at all? In some ways, I do because I feel like of all of the. The Trump administration, he's the one guy that, I think we've talked about this before, believes in ideas. And I disagree with his ideas, but he's in it for the right reason. And to see somebody who was as close to the president be cut out this way and to suddenly lose his platform and to be just disregarded, it, it I don't know. I, he'll be fine. He's probably a rich guy, so it's not the end of the world. But it just seems like Trump will get rid of anybody. And I, I don't know. Which is why I don't feel sorry for Bannon. Because yeah. <laughs> what, so for somebody who is about... So I, I don't feel sorry for him because I, I, I think his ideas are... Yeah. I'll say problematic. <laughs> but <laughs> One but could insert a, racist, national... Yeah. Or, for a man who is about the ideas, he was totally opportunistic in latching himself onto Donald Trump, who is a man who is not about ideas. So it was a deal with the devil. He, yeah. he did this... Because he saw this opportunity, and and he did did it knowing that Trump is the type of person that uses people and discards them as as needed, and so that's what happened to Steve Bannon. And so I don't feel all that bad for anyone around Trump who basically are using Trump to as this kind of you know you know jet ride to to importance. Uh, when that falls apart, I'm I'm not all that. I, I don't feel all that bad for them. You convinced me. I don't feel bad for him anymore. <laughs> All right, second topic. North Korea is back in the news. Uh, so U.S. officials apparently are mulling over the possibility of launching a military strike against North Korea uh, without provoking a war with North Korea. So trying to find this balance. So the Wall Street Journal is reporting this. It's been dubbed the bloody nose strategy. The idea is that you react to some nuclear missile test with a targeted strike against North Korean, a North Korean facility to, quote, bloody... Uh, North Korea's nose and illustrate the high price the regime could pay for its behavior. Now, I don't know what could go wrong with this strategy. This just seems like they're thinking things through and figuring it out. I, I don't know if we need five minutes, Phil. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> this seems like a very American idea. Yes. That, that, 
we have a tendency to view ourselves as Americans as sort of the center of the world, right? <laughs> um, and and the idea of of we'll just respond with, by just you know we won't kill a whole bunch of people. We'll just blow up a facility. <laughs> like we'll send a message, right? This is message is clear. But like when you flip that around, right? If you think about it in reverse, if any other, if North Korea decided they were going to send a message when when Donald Trump tweeted something belligerent, <laughs> by just striking a U.S. missile facility right. in the U.S. just to bloody your nose a little bit, I'm sure the Americans would go, "Whew, we learned our lesson. Yes, <laughs> no more tweets." <laughs> I, it's I I don't. Hmm. How do I put this without sounding like a crazy person? <laughs> um, I there there is part of me that oh, I don't believe that we are the center of the world, but there is a part of me that does believe in some aspects of us having a different position in the world than I'll I'll say every other country. Yeah. Um, uh, I think this would be a different scenario if we weren't talking about a. Um, a extraordinarily authoritarian autocratic regime with the largest standing army on the planet who also happens to have nuclear weapons and is based around the influences of pretty much one person if it was any of any anyone else besides this particular regime i don't i i can see what the effectiveness of something like that would be but um yeah, in this particular situation, I'm not a huge fan of it. But the no. presumptuousness of assuming that <laughs> yes. you could, like, this is the, that's what I think is very American, this idea that we have a right, if you piss us off, to launch missiles into your country, right? And that, <laughs> that, that doesn't make, that we're not the aggressor, we're just responding. Like, right. the, the idea that, that this is just a missile strike, not an act of war, is is kind of incredible. Like, to I mean, when you launch missiles into another country's sovereign territory, you have essentially declared mm -hmm. war on them. Um, and, and the idea that we wouldn't expect a warlike response from that is, I mean, we, I, we have the, to some extent, the ability to expect that because most countries we can do this to, like you're saying, Nick, and, and they don't have the ability to respond, but we've gotten so used to that, that I think we don't think about the ramifications of what happens when you launch missiles into a foreign country's territory. Mm -hmm. But let's simplify this at a human level. If somebody came up to you and punched you in the nose and gave you a bloody nose, you know, the natural reaction is to, well, not mine, I would run away, but I think most reactions would be to fight back, right? I mean, I think about all the bars I've been to at 2 a.m. when somebody punches somebody, the guy inevitably punches back. That's what happens. And and you think about North Korea, and there's been some journalists who've gone to North Korea in the last six months and come back to write stories saying that the average North Korean is convinced that the United States and North Korea will go to go to war at some point, which suggests that North Korea is prone in some ways, not looking forward to, but expecting a conflict. The last thing you want to do is punch them in the nose. Give them a reason to begin this conflict. I, I This terrifies me. Of all, I mean, North Korea kind of week in, week out terrifies me or doesn't terrify me. But this seems like an absurd foreign policy. That's why it's not going to happen. It'll never happen. The fact that it's... It, that it's the Wall, the, the Wall Street Journal is publishing a, a strategy like this, something that realistically no member of the general public in the U.S. should have any idea that this is even a strategy. And if it is a strategy, it's not a well-hidden one. I, I, there's, there's no part of me that thinks that this is a real option just because it's so readily available to 
to the general public. So they're leaking it to intimidate them? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question because it could be that there is somebody who is terrified of this plan. And so they leak it to the Wall yes. Street Journal to try to like get people talking about the insanity. Or it could be that this is a thoughtful leak so that, you, you know, you send a message to North Korea. Hey, we're thinking about this. Um, yeah, the intention of the leak kind of matters in, yeah. in some ways in, in that sense. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is an interesting week to have this discussion because North Korea is now making nice with South Korea. North yeah. Korea is going to show up to the Olympics. Is and that a, Jung-un is, that, is, is, yeah. is that a good thing? Are you are you are you pleased with the fact that North Korea is being invited to the Olympics? Or yes. Is that, yes. Uh, yeah. We'll see how many South Koreans get poisoned. But yes, <laughs> I, I think it'll be. Fun. I think the Olympics are one of those unique opportunities for countries to come together. It may not lead to meaningful conversations, but it's better than during the Olympics, North Korea engaging in, in its normal antics, launching missiles over South Korea. I mean, I think the fact that if they're there, they will be a more moderate presence. I think Kim Jong-un has been somewhat strategic in reaching out to South Korea, mm-hmm. saying, I'm, let's, let's separate from the United States. Let's have some conversations. Let's see if I can't peel some holes in the sanctions regime. To me, it sounds very rational and... Um, this bloody nose does not seem very rational to me, no. unless it is, a, like you said, unless it is a tactic. And then, well, yeah, it I could be it. the most rational response. Yeah. We we don't know. It right. sounds it sounds ludicrous, so it probably is. But maybe we're just getting so used to, to insanity that now we're like, oh, there's got to be some logic to this. So, with Trump, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I, I refuse to believe there is. <laughs> so, all right, so we're going through some of the big uh, hitting topics. Mueller is back in the news with the investigation. So uh, the special counsel, Robert Mueller, told President Trump's lawyers last month that he will probably seek to interview the president. No, for- no formal request has been made and no date has been set. Uh, yet White House officials viewed the discussion as a sign that Mr. Mueller's investigation of Mr. Trump could be nearing the end. If you are a lawyer for Donald Trump, do you let him anywhere near Robert Mueller and let him answer questions? No. I would uh, send a horse that could respond with yes or no answers before I send him. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ed. Yes. Can Tap he... once for yes. <laughs> Can he avoid... <clears throat> I, this is where my legal knowledge falls short. Can he avoid talking... I, I know that he can avoid answering questions by citing either executive privilege right. or, you know... You know, pleading the fifth or whatever. There, there are ways that he can avoid responding to Mueller. Is there a way that he can avoid actually facing Mueller? So they've already talked about uh, his lawyer was trying to find ways where he could either send written responses or videotaped responses yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think he. They're going to try every single <laughs> right, avenue that they possibly can to so, not have him face to face in front of anyone. Right. That's what I'm thinking. So the legal advice seems obvious, which is to basically don't answer anything. Yeah. Right. right. Just just claim you know cite executive privilege, whatever. Refuse to answer any questions. But Trump seems like he would be easily goaded into answering. <laughs> yes. Right. If you're if you have a, a smart uh, interrogator or a skilled interrogator across from him. It seems like you could egg him into answering stuff or to saying stuff pretty easily, which is where the whole videotape or pre-written response um, seems to make sense. They they can't let him anywhere near Mueller. I heard one story where the administration was considering just submitting an affidavit where he says, I'm innocent, which I think makes a lot of sense. Effective. I'm innocent, no collusion. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I I think his lawyers would be not serving him well if they let him go in. Because... 
not only could he get himself in trouble with if there's potential information on the, the Russian investigation or the obstruction of justice, but just lying in front of Mueller is potential is criminal as well. And he can't help himself. Right. <laughs> so he would he would inevitably lie. And then it is the Bill Clinton situation where it depends on what is is, right? That's what got Bill Clinton in trouble. And Bill Clinton was a very, very smart man. More That's where I wonder if it if it's possible to. So I, I don't. I, this is again like if I am subpoenaed by my local district attorney, um, I I don't get to send him a letter saying I'm innocent and right. not go talk to him. Right. right. I don't, like I, there's no way to avoid <clears throat> having to be interrogated. Hey, you didn't and accidentally so win a presidential election. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's a That's difference. Right. Maybe there are ways for me to avoid that, and that's where I, do, I need to hire a lawyer because I don't know those things. But I don't, I don't. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The fact that Mueller is is requesting this and not just saying, I don't think he did this with Paul Manafort. I'm guessing he told Paul Manafort, "You're coming in and asking." And Manafort said, "No, I'm taking the fifth. Fine, you're going to jail for." I mean, I, I would think that there's probably we're in new legal territory when we're talking about potentially bringing a president in for this. I mean, there's there's Bill Clinton, there's there's Nixon, but this is a, this is very different. Of all the <clears throat> updates that I thought we were going to get out of the investigation, this was not even close to the next one that I thought was going to happen. It was going to be a number of other indictments or interviews or any other information besides, well, we just go talk to the guy, see if he's lying or not. It's just... <laughs> It's such a a direct path, and I don't know if it actually means something. Like they're, if they have enough information that they just want to kind of put the final nail in the coffin, or if they're trying to trip him up, or or what. But it's a very very interesting development. Well, the Mueller investigation apparently has been asking lots of questions with everybody else they're interviewing about this issue of obstruction of justice. So he, it's not like he's going to let this go. So he has to have a conversation with Trump to to see what he's how he's going to answer these. Can he have a good justification for it? I, I yeah, I think this this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Trump continues to say no collusion. He's innocent, and that's one thing that strikes me. He is so forceful about saying. I'm innocent. This never happened. There was no collusion, no obstruction of justice. He's he does he makes a good case for him being innocent, but I think he has to be guilty. You know, I mean, oh, just saying something four hundred times doesn't isn't making a good case for it. <laughs> the way he says it, Phil, he's so. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Doesn't make it. That's not a good case. That's it is not a compelling case. <laughs> what was it? George Costanza said, "If you if you believe it, it's true." Yeah. Like I think that's I think some of that is happening. <laughs> Trump yeah. really believes he's innocent, or he just doesn't know that he's guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, Trump's going to go out to his fake house in the Hamptons That's with right. the solarium and yes. his horse, Prickly Pete. Oh. This is where that Fire and Fury, Fury book becomes potentially relevant in other ways as well, because I think it was in that book, several stories went around this week, one about Jeff Sessions, I guess, and and Trump being furious that Jeff Sessions, who was, somebody was put in charge of keep making sure that Jeff Sessions didn't recuse himself. Don McGahn, yes. Yes, and, yes. and then Jeff Sessions did. And so anyway, that that story is a story of obstruction of justice, right? Trying to interfere in in the doings of the Department of Justice, Mm. Um, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. But just the fact that this book is is citing this opens the door again for Jeff Sessions to possibly be interviewed or subpoenaed and and all sorts of things along these lines. So um, I'm glad you brought that up because each during the week I write down topics that I think we should discuss. And that was 
on Thursday and Friday of last week, that I felt like was going to be the number one topic. The fact that Jeff Sessions was told not to recuse himself and that Trump was intervening. And then by the time Wednesday rolls around, it's not even, not even, but <laughs> not even on the radar. <laughs> yeah, because absolutely, if Trump is pressuring McGahn or telling McGahn to pressure Sessions not to recuse himself, in and of itself, that's not necessarily obstruction. But if there's other pieces around that suggest this is going on, yeah, it's it's well, and and the the story was that he, Trump was mad because he viewed the um, attorney general's job as to as protecting the president, basically, right. which is not at all the attorney general's <laughs> oh, it's job. So terrible. And I guess he cited he cited Bobby Kennedy being, yes. uh, JFK's attorney general, and that's what he wanted. <laughs> essentially just, a family member to defend him. He doesn't get, he doesn't understand anything. <laughs> it's very complicated. So, Give him a break. All right, let's, let's talk about marijuana. So, <clears throat> all right, so the U.S. Justice Department on Thursday rescinded the Obama administration policy that had eased enforcement of federal marijuana law in states that legalized the drug, instead giving federal prosecutors wide latitude to pursue criminal charges. Uh, the action by Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, could have damaging consequences for the burgeoning marijuana industry in the six states, including California and Colorado, that have legalized the drug for recreational use, plus dozens of others that permit medicinal use. Uh, what happened to states' rights? They gone. They gone. They gone. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a perfect example of going back to what we were talking about earlier about whether it matters that Bannon is gone and how the people around Trump matter because Trump doesn't have a policy doctrine. Yeah. This is, you know, Trump Trump ran on he even talked about during the election marijuana as a state's rights issue, but he doesn't he's he doesn't care. I mean, this is we we talked before we came on the air about the stories about uh, Trump needing all his executive time. I don't I don't know. Oh, we forgot to bring that up. Yes. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) Trump has been requiring increasing amounts of executive time on his schedule. Uh, like hours, multiple hours a day. Like he doesn't start until like 10 or 11 in the morning and he'll have like an hour long meeting and then two hours of executive time. And executive time <laughs> is time to watch TV and tweet. Essentially, that's what all the reports are saying. So Trump doesn't want to do this job. Right. So he's he's allowing the people around him to do the job. And that's where he ran on states rights. But Jeff Sessions is being is allowed to he's being essentially given mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of leeway to do whatever he wants. And so Jeff Sessions, who has for a long time had these very hardline stances on drugs is is using his position to to roll back Obama era uh, you know decisions on on allowing states to have I mean he's not he has a right to do this right, right. federal law still says that that marijuana use is is illegal so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of strange though well it's uh, again another example of uh, a a position or ideology or a piece of legislation that they just don't need to tackle right now. And not only do they not, that this is uh, harmful from an ideological perspective, you're now splitting, you know, fundamental aspects of, of the party's belief system. I, I, I mean... Marijuana's Col- bad. It's, it's bad, okay? <laughs> um, you, like, Colorado Republicans, generally speaking, are, are fairly, you know lock in step mm-hmm. um are furious and up in arms about this why why are you adding another uh just example of of just complete ineptness when it comes to creating a coherent policy that's not only going to at least give the perception that you know what you're doing but also help your party to maintain 
power. Sure. I, I, I don't understand. And it shows how out tell of... Me, tell me what's going on. Out of step. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to know if Trump is is out of step with all of what's going on in marijuana, but Jeff Sessions certainly is, right? I mean, this is right. something... He's an old school guy who says, this, is, this should be outlawed. Drugs are bad, and we're going to crack down... It, this could be really, really complicating for states like Colorado and California, where there is this industry that's growing and developing. Are can they, you know, businesses that are doing this? Can they get loans? I mean, this isn't just a the idea of you know breaking down the door of somebody who's selling pot. This is a a complicated global commerce issue that could work its way through the court system. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I am well, surprised that Trump allowed this to happen. But maybe, as you said, Phil. He's so indifferent to it. He's so busy with executive time that he didn't realize that this is something that I don't think his base cares about, but just Jeff Sessions cares about. Well, and it seems like a, it, I don't know, in my mind, it seems like a losing issue for the Republican Party in some ways, um, in that I don't know that you pick up many voters by by banning. Like if, if, if you were opposed to marijuana legalization, you were probably already a Republican, right? right. Um, and, and I don't know that they, but, but I, We've we've talked a little bit on here I, uh, with my college students, with, with people under the age of 30 Republicans that I know, they tend to be much more of the libertarian mindset in terms of Republicanism than yes. of the sort of social conservative uh, evangelical Christian brand of, mm-hmm. of um, Republicanism. And I, and I see that as being an issue in that the the sort of older generation has a grasp on the Republican Party right now. But there needs to be some sort of handoff if they want to hold on to these more libertarian minded Republican, uh, younger Republicans, yeah. I think. And that's where someone like Donald Trump, who's not really who doesn't care that much about the Republican Party. It, that's where having him as president matters or potentially backfires. Right. Because Jeff Sessions gets to do whatever he want, where it wants, whereas if Mitt Romney were in, you know, he would probably consult with Republican leaders and talk about a long-term strategy for the party and how it benefits them or how it hurts them. And um, yeah, I mean, this is where it's just kind of, it's not chaos, but you have a whole bunch of people allowed to sort of run with their pet projects and you don't have a, a like a whole holistic kind of political or strategic approach to, to politics. And this could be an opportunity for Trump on issues of marijuana and gay rights to say, I'm going to move the Republican Party in a more progressive direction and make it more strategic moving forward. Because it seems to me that the issues that Republicans get hammered on with with young people is marijuana and gay rights. Like, you have to move forward on those issues. And the reality is that's that's where the debate is going. Ten years from now, we're not having a conversation about gay rights. We're not having a conversation about legalization of marijuana. The country will have moved forward. And you have an opportunity to win some of those voters back. Uh, but not, not like this. Not if you're prosecuting, you know, crimes. Six billion dollars, I think, something. Is that, is that what like the, that? the revenue is? From, yeah. yeah, from taxes. Yeah. Something like that in the past year, I think. People like the drugs. I believe it. They love their drugs. Yeah. <laughs> They're all too high to remember to go vote. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Because none of this matters. This is all a moot point in the end. <laughs> oh. We're at an hour, Nick. Should we just jump to our final topic? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the I, I haven't written anything for a final topic other than Oprah for president and Joe Arpaio for Senate. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Are we in? Are we out? okay? So, so I, this this developed because Oprah gave this amazing speech at the Golden Globes, where everybody was motivated, and she was talking about. Nick didn't think it was amazing. I don't think. <laughs> so, no, could you feel that through the? Screen? I felt the eye roll all the way oh, halfway God. across the country where I am. People love Oprah, Nick. So, after her amazing speech, everybody was motivated, and saying that she should run for president. And then uh, yesterday or today. 
uh, Sheriff Joe came out and said he is going to run for Senate in Arizona for Jeff Flake's seat. He's 85 years old. He's spry, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so are both of these insane? Is you know what? what I don't know. Yeah, they're is both it, insane. Talk, I shouldn't have yeah. even brought it up. <laughs> it's, I was about to say, can a felon run for Senate? But I guess you can. That's, it depends, that's, it uh, depends on the felony. So. <laughs> <sighs> um. <laughs> Should Oprah run, Phil? Take your time. <laughs> so, I, I mean, okay. So, I, I'll give my initial reaction, and then I'll come back around to my my sort of secondary thought on it. My initial reaction is, no, no, <laughs> Oprah should not run. Um, and it's not anything to do with necessarily Oprah, but if the if the whole critique of the Trump ascendancy is this like celebrity culture, like why, you like vote for somebody who has policy expertise and background and experience in governing. And we, we like to um, demonize politicians in this country. Like, I don't want to vote for a politician. I want to vote for, but politics is like any other job, right? When I go in and have a surgery done, I want a surgeon with lots of experience in surgery. And so pick somebody who actually has experience in politics and knows how to, you know, navigate the Washington infrastructure and get things done. So my initial reaction is no, don't vote for us. Don't nominate a celebrity, nominate somebody who like has policy experience. Now, as I thought about it a little bit more, I came back around to there, there is a model for someone like Oprah. Who's very up Ronald Reagan. I swear, I'm going to punch the screen. <laughs> don't do it. Why, why, why is that such a bad analogy? <laughs> now I, it is a bad analogy because Ronald Reagan did have governing experience. Yeah, right? So he, he came from California, but the, 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 the model. So I don't want to say that, Oprah is the equivalent of Ronald Reagan, but the model that he used, which was essentially surrounding himself, you know, he was very dynamic, very likable, very charismatic, and he surrounded himself with people who who knew what the hell they were doing, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it, there is a model in which, you know, if someone who's very charismatic and persuasive can can get elected and surround themselves, then, you know, I would still rather have someone who's charismatic, persuasive, and knows the policy, right? right. That's, that's the more, um, that's the better model. Well, so, I mean, sorry. that's, no, that's, I, I don't disagree with you. I, what, <laughs> what scares me is that someone who is charismatic and can appeal to a base is kind of how we got into the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I have no problem with people coming from that particular background and who are charismatic and influential and you know can can fire people up but you better have some fucking experience with this machine and realistically it is a machine and there are certain ways that it works you can attempt to change it or make it evolve or dismantle parts of it but you can't just attempt to use your your charisma and the fact that you were a a talk show host for 30 years make up the difference like we, right. uh, we need to completely get away from that method of thinking this th- I, I agree with that go ahead well just I, I, although the one caveat is i think no. oprah would be a better president than trump right there's, <laughs> yes. there's no question there but all of that being said i agree with you nick i i think we need to why can't we have more angela merkels in the u.s political system somebody who just knows what they're doing they're not dynamic they're not Eloquent. I mean, they just they just know how to she's govern. Not fun. But isn't that the point? So I don't care if I'm going in for uh, heart bypass surgery. I don't care if my surgeon is dynamic or you know can tell a wonderful story. Can he do his job right? And it feels but, like we've turned politics into celebrity, and that's that's a dangerous thing. 
But politics is also about winning people over, right? Yes. So if your heart surgeon had to convince your heart that it should start beating differently, then you would want a charismatic <laughs> heart surgeon, right? So there's some, there's, there is a, there's, I totally get your point, but there is some aspect of the charismatic. That, no, I, I agree. Uh, that matters. Now, the problem with the whole charismatic leader, like Oprah, who surrounds herself with really smart people, is that that discounts the, the, the requirement of being able to actually adjudicate between these different ideas and judge which ideas are good and pick the right people. And that's where, again, experience matters. There's a similarity to Trump in some ways with Oprah in that I think one of the problems that with Trump is that he, he does have this, one of the selling points of Trump was that he had this background in business, but then he gets to DC and he wants to run it like a CEO, but that's not how mm -hmm. politics works. And if there's anybody in the world who like, more so than Trump has this experience of like snapping their fingers and everyone does what you want. It's Oprah. That's, right? that's true. Like, that's right. So there, there's a little bit of a concern there as well in that, you know, she's used to having people, you know, just fall in line with her because she's Oprah and that, that would be different in governing. She could vote Don't some vote people. for Oprah. She shouldn't be <laughs> yeah, a president. Just, right. We're going to say it now. Just don't do it. Well, if, if Trump has taught us anything is I think to Phil's early point is that we should look for people who have experience and if these celebrities want to do this, go the route of Ronald Reagan. Run for governor first. Be a Jesse Ventura. Get some experience. and then. But he... don't be Jesse Ventura. Right, exactly. <laughs> but that was the point. He ran for governor. We realized, well, that was probably about all you should do. And then we move on. Donald Trump could have done that. Oh, why doesn't Oprah run for, like, state senate or something? You know, that's, I don't know. I, I, that's below her. I don't think she would do it. Yeah. <laughs> it, Obama did that. Obama started in Illinois, went to the Senate. I mean, it was a shorter period, but at least he had some experience before making that jump. Let's end this by, I'll ask you to, yeah. end, to end it by answering the question of, do you think she's going to run? No. No. You don't? She's a gazillionaire. Yeah. Why would you? Nobody that has that Donald much Trump's money is a dumb enough to Why do would that. he run for president? He's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah's smart. Oprah knows that she can, I mean, Trump regrets, I mean, to go back to Nick's earlier point, Trump, I'm sure, regrets winning. He had a wonderful life. Uh, running for presidency is a great thing. Winning the presidency is brutal. And it's tearing him down. Oprah knows better. She's, she doesn't even need to do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. The smartest ones are never dumb enough to go after that office. Yeah. It's horrible. It oh, has to be a horrible job. It's, it, you could be the best president and it still is going to take years off your life and, yeah, mm -hmm. crush your soul. That well, was like fun. being a professor, Bill. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Professors have a lot of executive time. That's the yeah. nice thing. <laughs> I expect to see an executive sign yeah. little that would be postcard good. I, thing I get on the outside. Yeah, don't mm -hmm. bother me. It's executive time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that was yeah something. That was good. These are fun. Um, yeah, well, if, uh, if you've liked what you heard... Um, and enjoy these lively discussions and, and our book club discussions. Um, follow us on Facebook uh, and Twitter. Um, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Twitter at Barstool Paul. Uh, you can find us on... Go ahead. I was going to say, and if you have a Twitter or Facebook account, share us with your friends. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, tell if you like this and you say... Do hey, I have to tell people that? I think we should. Share, share us. Isn't that dumb? It's called re retweeting. Yeah, yeah re <laughs> that's right. Is that what the kids call <laughs> what it? What the kids are calling it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find beers that we try on the Untapped app that you can download on iOS and Android. Uh, you can find the actual podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, share and subscribe uh, on those platforms. Um, that helps us tremendously. 
and um, we're I'm, I'm gonna read the rest of that book and see if it's any less soap opera-y. And I'm not checking our email anymore. <laughs> You're just done with it, huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, anything else from you? No. No. Nope. Anyways. Let's, Cheers, let's, guys. Let's Cheers. See where, see where next week goes. Sounds good. All right.